This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Good afternoon, uh, everyone. I'm delighted to introduce uh, uh, our speaker this Friday, who is Dr. James Loxley, who's head of English at the University of Edinburgh. So he hasn't come far, but it'll be good anyway. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, apart from, well, spending his days um, every waking hour uh, looking after us all. Um, James manages to keep up this uh, extraordinary rate of productivity with uh, his own research, and his recent publications include um, oh, well, a stream of essays, really, on uh, Civil War writing and on 17th century writing, including work on Andrew Marvell, uh, Ben Jonson, uh, Thomas Hobbes, and an old interest of his royalism and theatre. And a little further back in time, uh, James also made uh, an exciting discovery, which was the... Um, uh, previously unknown accounts of the walk that Ben Johnson uh, took from England uh, to Scotland, and that led to an HRC-funded project, uh, co-edited with um, our new colleague Anna Groundwater, uh, to publish that manuscript, um, which I think is due um, well, shortly, but in time. Anyway. Uh, so we'll look forward to that. Um, and he has other work ongoing, uh, including a book on Shakespeare, Johnson, and Performativity, uh, work on an anthology with uh, Greg Walker of Renaissance Literature and a collection of essays with, uh, on Stanley Cavell. Um, but these are just these publications. These are just, just these published works. Uh, James has a lot of life um, as a kind of a curator, really, um, which partly feeds in what he's going to talk about tonight, I think. Um, and he also has another HRC-funded project, um, which is an exhibition at the National Library, um, which if you haven't seen it yet, you certainly should. Just go up the stairs and turn right. And that exhibition concerns uh, Shakespeare and early modern drama in Edinburgh and Scotland. And I think that's partly reflected in what you'll speak about shortly. Uh, in the paper called Shakespeare's Cheap, another bard in Scotland. Thank you very much indeed for, for that introduction, Dan. That's, that's smashing more than I deserve. Um, I thought I would try and put a presentation together with some slides and then talk to that. And that was my plan. Uh, until the last time I tried to do that uh, for a paper in St Andrews um, when I was about halfway through my slides and just, I thought, getting into my stride uh, and I looked at my watch and realised that I'd been talking for an hour and a quarter and the people at the back of the room had already started to tunnel uh, to try and get out. Uh, so I thought instead I would rein myself in and actually write it out. Um, so uh, I, I, hope that, uh, I hope that's OK with you. I perhaps also ought to say a couple of things about what I'm not going to do here, uh, in case anyone's labouring under any misapprehensions, I'm not going to attempt to talk uh, about Shakespeare on the stage in Scotland. Uh, that would be another project entirely. And neither am I going to try and talk in any detail about Shakespeare's um, uptake by, by Scottish writers either. That's not necessarily, that's not exactly my field of expertise, not necessarily where I'd want to go, uh, 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 at least not without a few more years of work. Um, and what I am going to do, I hope, will become clear uh, from what I say. Uh, if it doesn't, you can throw things at me at the end. Okay, Shakespeare's cheek. Another bard in Scotland. That's Macbeth, by the way. Last spring, Dunsinane came to Edinburgh. If that, sound, if that sounds like a reworking of Shakespeare, then so it should. Dunsinane is a play by David Gregg, a sequel to Macbeth that not only continues the narrative, but rewrites certain crucial details within it. Most significantly, 
it brings Lady Macbeth back to life and restores to her both her son and her name. It's a powerful work, not least for its topical allegory. As the play opens, the English army of the Northumbrian Seaward wins the victory that allows it to implement regime change, as if medieval Scotland were contemporary Iraq or Afghanistan. There's an obvious sense in which the play is an allegory of what has happened or perhaps ought to have happened to liberal interventionism in both those places. In the figures of Macbeth's queen, Gruach, and Malcolm, on whose behalf Seward has ostensibly conducted his campaign, the play gives us two different types of the colonial other and two different versions of the rending and reconstituting of language across and within the confrontations of neo-imperialism. Seward, the self-regardingly blunt-speaking, therefore blundering southerner, is out of his element. The limitations and motivation of his visions of language and politics are ruthlessly, if teasingly, exposed in his inability to get to grips with both Gruach's ineffable Gallic and Malcolm's sophisticated equivocations. In the process, his belief in the essential simplicity of the language of politics and the politics of language uh, is emptied out, and the actions that belie- that belief motivated lose touch with their reasons, or their capacity indeed for any kind of justification. This is not, though, just an allegory of the rise and fall of liberal interventionism. As a sequel to a play which is at least nominally historical, Dunsinane is also in the business of reworking the narratives of history in the interests of the present. Insofar as the plays Scots and English are not merely vehicles for an allegory of Western Empire, then its political engagements resonate closer to home. The brutality visited by Seward and his army on the Gaelic-speaking population of the conquered land, for example, foreshadows or perhaps recalls the brutality with which the mid-18th century British state assaulted Highland culture and society, and resonates with the ways in which that brutality has been represented and remembered. If we bring these two allegorical strands together, though, we get what might well seem to be a hyperbolical alignment. To superimpose the Scotland evoked by these aspects of its history on the sufferings of the territories on which Western coalitions have recently visited their avowedly liberatory intentions is a potentially fraught move, erasing, as it threatens to do, the westernness of Scotland and, more locally, the presence of Scottish regiments and battalions in the the invading forces. This isn't, it seems to me, a move of which the play makes much. Unlike in, say, Gregory Burke's Black Watch, there can be no attempt at explicit identification between Scottish and Middle Eastern tribes, which is the word that Burke uses in, in that play. The business of crossing borders, though, is fully played out at another metadramatic level. The play is notably restless in its assumption of a Shakespearean inheritance, and notably aware of its placing within a series of national questions. Its rewritings of Macbeth are to some extent playful and knowing, a nod to its audience. The confrontation between Malcolm and Macduff in Act 4 of Shakespeare's play, in which the heir apparent reduces himself to test Macduff's sense of king, good kingly conduct, reappears in more grimly sardonic guise in a fraught exchange between Greg's Malcolm and Seward. Seward himself parallels Macbeth in his tortured journey from warrior to butcher. Sometimes, though, the writing back seems more like a refusal of such intertextual play, just to start afresh with the character of Lady Macbeth, to ignore her fate as Shakespeare wrote it, is perhaps a more pointed response to that definitive portrayal. Yet it isn't entirely clear (coughs) how to take what can't be, or can't simply be, an instance of the Empire writing back. Greg's own words on this subject, in fact, suggest that another way of characterising his aims 
was uppermost in his mind. In an interview, he remarked that, for Scottish writers, it's always felt a little bit cheeky that unquestionably the greatest Scottish play was written by the great English playwright. He's not the first to have felt that Shakespeare's exceptionally influential imagining of Scottish history requires some kind of a response, despite its greatness, or perhaps because of its greatness. <coughs> Others have complained that the rendering of this king as a desperate tyrant is an injustice that still requires redress. Indeed, on the thousandth anniversary of Macbeth's birth, the Conservative MSP Alex Johnston tabled a Holyrood motion, regretting that Macbeth is misportrayed when he was a successful Scottish king. Greg echoes such complaints and makes them the prompt for his play's political allegory. As he put it in another interview, so the cheeky bit of me thought, what if the stories of Macbeth being a tyrant turned out to be propaganda, a bit like the weapons of mass destruction? Dunsinane was commissioned by the Royal Shakespeare Company and the same production was brought north by the National Theatre of Scotland. It could hardly have had a more institutionally solid origin. But it's interesting that Greg should characterise what both he and Shakespeare have done as cheeky, or as cross-border cheek and counter-cheek. There is in that phrasing just a hint of the friction, the resistance, catch or check that sometimes manifests in Scottish responses to him, as well, of course, as more than a hint of familiarity. For a long time, Shakespeare's appeal, his main claim in our attention and praise, has been seen to lie in his universality. He is thought to be the most translatable, the most translated of writers, and his works have been treasured, prized, and enjoyed by all manner of people everywhere. But that doesn't mean that his plays always escape any question or issue of place or belonging, that they are easily and simply cosmopolitan. And that's certainly the case with Scott and Shakespeare that one of his plays should be so definitively associated with Scotland and with the question of the nation as to become simply the Scottish play is evidence for the specialness of this relationship. That the play actually stages cross-border traffic between England and Scotland also <coughs> contributes, as does the widespread and much trumpeted by some identification of Shakespeare as, in Greg's words, the great English playwright. There's a long history to all this and one which it seems can still make its presence felt. And it's one that would be hard to ignore when working out how to tell the story of the extraordinarily rich collections of Shakespeare and early modern drama held in two Scottish repositories, NLS and the University of Edinburgh Library, which is what I spent a few years uh, doing along with Helen Vincent of NLS in order to put on the exhibition. If we want to go beyond Macbeth, as our exhibition title has it, it would seem that we might need to have made sense of where it is that Macbeth leaves us. And it's not obviously clear that we have despite, or perhaps because of, the long history of cultural friction and intimacy, which is really just one process, whatever we call it, of which the play's engagement with national questions is a part. So what are these collections, and what kinds of claim can we make for their significance? They're not all that well known, despite their extent, perhaps because people don't expect to find them here, or perhaps because we've not hitherto found a ready and easy way to talk about them. They consist of around 2,000 English language playbooks from the 16th to the 18th centuries, many of them rare, and a significant proportion Shakespearean. Among these latter, inevitably, is a first folio, but the collections also include later folios and full sets of influential early editions. They range from prompt books marked up for performance, which have been extracted from a first and a third folio, and include the earliest surviving performance copy of Hamlet, to three strikingly different copies of one of the finest Shakespearean publications of the 20th century, the Cranach Press Hamlet, uh, uh, edition of Hamlet. 
there's a, an opening from that. This opulent book was published in 1930, and we hold both a full set of corrected proofs and a unique and sumptuously bound presentation volume given to the editor of the text. In the university collections, there are also more than, one, more than 100 volumes of manuscript and miscellaneous material gathered together by one of the 19th century's best-known Shakespeareans, James Orchard Halliwell Phillips. He started off as James Orchard Halliwell, but collected names as he went along. <laughs> We've also got 300 volumes of his correspondence. NLS holds correspondence and papers for one of the most prominent 20th century Shakespeare scholars, John Dover Wilson. Most significantly, though, the two libraries between them hold 70 pre-1640 Shakespeare quartos, a number only rivaled or exceeded by the most expansive of research libraries, such as the British Library, the Bodleian Library, and the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. There are at least two ways of accounting for these holdings. From one perspective, the fact that they came to be in Edinburgh is sheer contingency, or the unanticipated congruence of independent processes and events. To a large extent, the extent and location of these holdings are the result of the activities of three individuals and one family over four centuries. At the heart of the Edinburgh University collection are copies of early editions of Romeo and Juliet and Love's Labour's Lost, once owned by the poet and exemplary Renaissance scholar William Drummond of Hawthornden. Here he is, looming over us. Drummond's taste extended not only to the classics, but also to a wide range of his European contemporaries, and he acquired books in a variety of languages on his own travels, from those willing and able to obtain them for him, and from Edinburgh booksellers. He acquired a large and literary library, but decided not to keep it solely for his own use. His books, he felt, could benefit the students at his own alma mater, the still young university, founded by <coughs> Royal Charter in 1583, and then known as the King's or the Tomb College, the university completed a new library building in 1617, just as James VI made his salmon-like return, as he described it, to the native land he had left to take up the English throne in 1603. And here we have a map of Edinburgh from the mid-17th century. Uh, Recognisable features, I'd hope. Uh, St Giles up there, up further up to uh, other churches. And then we've got down here the university building, some slightly idealised uh, rendering. They were in a little bit more ramshackle than that, but these, this is the library. Now, Drummond not only gave books of his own to stock it, but encouraged and organised others to do so. The fact that his donation included English playbooks and that the university's leaders were pleased to accept them says something either about their intellectual openness, though the then curriculum wouldn't support that view, or an eagerness to build up their collections by whatever means possible. Although they were regrettably but perhaps necessarily rebound in the 19th century, these books have been well guarded. With them were perhaps only two known and careful owners away from the London booksellers who first offered them for sale. Drummond's was not the only early donation to include Shakespeare quartos. In early 1700, William Hogg of Harkus gave a miscellaneous donation of 64 books, among which was a copy of the second quarto of Titus Andronicus. This book is exceptionally rare. Even now, only two copies are known to exist. And it was sought out by the then James Halliwell when he was making Shakespearean facsimiles to assist him in his editorial labours during the 1860s. In seeking to negotiate a loan of this edition, he called on the assistance of his friend, the Scottish scholar and antiquary David Lang, with whom he'd corresponded for 20 years. Lang won the university's approval, and the book travelled south for a few months in 1865 and 66, with Halliwell sending regular bulletins to reassure Lang of its progress and safety. Halliwell built up great collections of Shakespearean material, but he was a dealer and a donor, as well as a collector, 
and his collections were made and remade several times over the years. The University of Glasgow holds a first folio he once owned and then sold. By the turn of the 1870s, he decided to donate a collection of 29 quartos, many volumes of manuscript material and other printed materials to a Scottish repository, and sought Lang's advice on a suitable home. At Lang's prompting, he settled on Edinburgh rather than Glasgow, and a substantial donation arrived there in stages during the 1870s and 1880s, along with elaborate stipulations, all, of course, utterly ignored by the uh, university librarians, on how it was to be catalogued and shelved. Halliwell envisaged a separate Shakespeare room. He also spoke of adding in his extensive collection of Shakespeare engravings and a fine copy of the first folio, but those were not in the end forthcoming. He appears to have got wind of the fact that the university was not quite honouring his wishes. Perhaps this limited his generosity, who knows. The heart of the collection at NLS was formed in the century and a half before Halliwell began his career, but arrived in the library more than a century later. This collection, including 1,266 English plays, was the work of three collectors over three generations. Lady Mary Workley Montague, her son-in-law John Stuart, the third Earl of Butte, and his eldest surviving son, the eventual first Marquess of Butte. That's not him, that's her. <laughs> Many of the plays acquired by Workley Montague contain her, pri- her pithy critical judgments. The case is altered is described as a good plot yet silly play. The roaring girl is woeful, while a fair quarrel is approved as good. Built up over decades, housed by the third earl in the grand library he'd built at Luton Hoo, his Robert Adam designed house in Bedfordshire, and re-catalogued and rebound in the early 19th century, the collection gained its Shakespeare quartos during the lifetime of the first Marquis, who acquired them at some of the most high-profile Shakespeare auctions uh, of the day. The collection remained in the possession of the family until 1956, when it was purchased for NLS. Instrumental in promoting and arranging that acquisition was John Dover Wilson, eminent Shakespearean and Regis Professor of English at Edinburgh from 1935 to 45, as well as a trustee of NLS. And this will be an uh, image that is familiar to anyone who spent any time gazing at the walls in room 611 upstairs. <laughs> Wilson was also a prime mover behind an acquisition that took place a few years later. Halliwell Phillips had also left a collection of printed drama to the town of Penzance, because he liked to spend his summers there. He was a capricious man. And after many inert years, this eventually came up for sale at auction in 1962. Wilson and his successor, John Butt, cajoled and persuaded the university and potential donors until enough money was raised to make a successful bid for the largest part of the sale, ensuring, therefore, that another, that another 600 playbooks joined those left to the university a century before. Imagine that, the university library shelling out a huge sum of money for 600 playbooks. Fantastic. Having secured these two large acquisitions, which he saw as demonstrating the cultural seriousness of Scottish educational and national institutions, Wilson bequeathed his own papers to NLS, including often fascinating correspondence, not just with fellow academics, that's not that fascinating, but also with Harley Granville Barker, T.S. Eliot, Neville Chamberlain, Michael Redgrave, Siegfried Sassoon, Laurence Olivier, uh, Vivian Lee, many others. So the formation of these collections was not the kind of single-minded collecting, the mission or obsession which lies behind institutions, such as the Folger Shakespeare Library or the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. If not quite acquired in a fit of absence of mind, there's nonetheless a story of broadly happy accident to be told here. Yet it would also seem to be more than that. There are consistent threads running through the narrative, which suggest that we wouldn't be wrong to see in it something more than sheer happenstance. Drummond's donation of his books to King James's College was hardly an act without precedent or parallel, but it testifies to an understanding of the value of learning and of the value of the availability of learning 
which would seem also to have motivated Wilson over 300 years later. For both of them, a university library was obviously a good place for all these riches, and it was, his, it was its mission still to gather up and concentrate the cultural wealth that might otherwise be lost and dispersed elsewhere. For both of them, it was important that such collections are held here, in Scotland. If knowledge itself knew no borders and belonged to everyone, yet it was important that each place should have its store. The Shakespearean book was part of that for both of them too, totemically for Wilson, less vitally for Drummond. In deciding to give a collection to a Scottish institution, Halliwell Phillips was similarly recognising the importance and significance of place. Now, the Earl and Marquis of Butte fit into this picture too, to some extent. This is the Earl, the Grand, because he was Prime Minister for a while. With their country piles in Scotland, Cardiff and Bedfordshire, their lives in and around the government in London, they would seem to be the very models of the 18th and early 19th century British aristocrat. Yet there were other aspects to the way the Earl saw his role. He was a close friend and patron of John Hume, the minister and dramatist whose play, Douglas, became such a sensation when it was first performed in Edinburgh in 1756. Indeed, he not only corresponded with Hume about his plays, but actually assisted in the process of rewriting and revision. He was a patron, too, to other parts of Enlightenment Scotland, and he used his power and influence with George III to help establish the Regis Chair of Rhetoric and Belles Lettres at the University of Edinburgh in, you know the date by now, 1762, a suggestion floated by John Hume in 1756. It was this chair to which Wilson was appointed in 1935, and which helped to invest him with the political and cultural cachet he needed to influence the fate of such valuable collections of books in the 1950s and 60s. If we're tempted to discern a meaning or pattern then, we might want to tell a story of the long-standing cultural prestige and magnetism of universities and great libraries, a story of a consistent apprehension, larger or broader or more diffuse than the vision of one person, that the gathering together of collections of books is not just a private hobby or mania, but an act of public significance. This would also be a story of the prestige of literature in general, and of how a public came to be defined, or to define itself, through the roles it allotted to its institutions, and the kinds of valued objects it required them to prize and make available. That we have such collections, clearly or merely, shows that Shakespeare has for long enough been that kind of valued and public object. But where, in this story, is any hint of cheekiness? Where's the intimacy and friction, the touchiness in the best sense that Greg speaks of and feels in his own responses? To get at this aspect of things, we need to appreciate something of the ways in which Shakespeare has played a part in the kinds of cross-border, tactile <coughs> encounter enjoyed by those who became, if enjoyed is the right word, uh, in, that, in 1603, equally steward peoples. That his part in such encounters has usually been posthumous shouldn't obscure the significance of the fact that he and the monarch who united the thrones of England and Scotland were almost of an age, and that Shakespeare's theatre was most obviously flourishing during the years in which, in which James VI acquired his English crown. An understanding of some of the ways in which Shakespeare is a Jacobean writer, <coughs> and what being Jacobean might mean now, can, I think, help to make sense of the responses described by Greg. Now, there is, of course, no evidence that William Shakespeare ever visited Scotland, though that hasn't prevented sometimes wild speculation on the back of a few relevant facts. Some have claimed Macbeth displays a knowledge of its setting that could only have been gained firsthand, but this shows a strangely diminished view of the literary imagination and ignorance of the degree of geographical knowledge available to literate people. We do know that James VI patronised English players, and that the Lawrence Fletcher, who was listed among the King's servants on a visit to Aberdeen in 1601, is in all likelihood the same as the man who is listed first, ahead of Shakespeare, among the company of players 
awarded the patent to perform as the king's men in 1603. And here's a picture of James in front of his English capital, in fact, pretty much blotting out his English <laughs> capital, though you can just about see some theatres down the bottom uh, with the flags there. Uh, what you can't see is St Paul's Churchyard where the books would have been sold. Um, this is actually from uh, a copy of Drummond's poems published in 1616 in a kind of large quarto fold, uh, format with sort of fold-out uh, engravings like this. Sorry, back to the point. That Shakespeare's company was taken under the regal wing is itself significant. It speaks to the poet king's endorsement of the prestigious place of the literary arts in his kingdoms. We're so used to seeing Shakespeare twinned with Elizabeth Tudor in popular history and influential fictions that we forget that he wrote some of his finest plays in the reign of her successor. Macbeth is one of those works and explicitly takes its cue from these new conditions. Whether or not it was ever performed for James, it forges its story from aspects of both his personal and his dynastic makeup. And crucial to those was the future for Britain, whatever that was, that James's accession appeared to make possible. Despite James's determination that a union of crowns should become a union of kingdoms, the matter of Britain was taken up asymmetrically by the two commonwealths called upon to participate. Uh, as JGA Pocock has suggested, the union of the crowns diverted Scottish self-fashioning into a British context. It became engrossed with establishing the character of a Briton, with maintaining Scottish autonomy as that of a province or partner in that empire, <coughs> these are inverted commas, and with resisting the incapacity of an intensely self-centred self English discourse to conceive of Britain as anything but an enlargement of England. Certainly, we can see cultural evidence of this Scottish interest in British possibilities, both in the lives of those who followed their king south, in Scottish contributions to the debates and negotiations over possible union launched by James, and in the more complex orientation of someone like Drummond, who's closely connected to the now unified and southern court, but has his anglicised poetry published from the print shop of Edinburgh's own Andrew Hart, rather than out of Pearl Paul's churchyard in London. And while the constitutional conservatism of English lawyers and politicians certainly put paid to any possibility of full political union on terms that their Scots equivalents could have stomached, not all the possibilities and implications of a shared monarchy could be so definitively rebuffed. The most obvious and profound instance of such failure is what's known as Calvin's case, the judgment on which in 1608 clearly conceded that the English polity and its ancient constitution could not remain untouched by James's assumption of his great-great-grandfather's throne. Calvin's case, or the case of the post-Nati, was brought on behalf of a Scots infant, Robert Calvin, and was the staged occasion, really, for determining conclusively whether those Scots born after James's accession to the English throne could legitimately hold property in England on the same terms and in the same manner as James's English subjects. Settling the case required the invocation and recrafting of politically fundamental questions around sovereignty, allegiance, and the rights of the subject or citizen. Fundamental questions, in other words, about the state, the state and the nation. The successful arguments accepted that the fact that the now King of England was also King of Scots made a juridical difference to the former polity as well as a practical one. Calvin's case marks the constitutional acknowledgement across different courts that the Scots were neither English nor foreign. They were, as Francis Bacon had put it in Commons debates on the possibility of general naturalisation in 1607, alteri nos, not our others, but in Bacon's phrasing, 
other ourselves. That's what he says. Which makes their somewhat uncanny status especially clear. In English literary and dramatic writing, too, the new thematics of Britain, Union, and the Scots made their presence firmly felt. Macbeth is far from being the only Shakespearean evidence for this. As plenty of critics have argued, he found inspiration in an ancient British history that the prospect and then the reality of dynastic union made properly visible, and both King Lear and Cymbeline demonstrated sense of the timeliness of this inheritance. Lear Marcus has not been alone in suggesting that Cymbeline's posthumous deliberately recalls the post-Nati of Calvin's case. What's more, Shakespeare's interest in matters Scots was not an idiosyncrasy, and Macbeth was certainly not the only Scottish play to find a place on the London stage around the turn of the 17th century. Robert Greene's The Scottish History of James IV was staged around 1590 and printed in 1598. It's a fantastic play if anyone ever, uh, ever wants to read it. It says on the title page, Slain at Flooden, and then he isn't. It just doesn't happen. <coughs> fantastic. Um, the Diary of the Impresario Philip Henslow records payments in 1599 to Henry Chettle, Thomas Decker, and Ben Jonson for Robert II, King of Scots, or The Scots Tragedy. In 1602, Charles Massey's Malcolm, King of Scots, was staged by the Admiral's men. Three years later, Robert Burton's lost play Alba was performed before King James at the University of Oxford. The properties list associated with the play calls for eight or ten kings, twenty nymphs, four hermits, ten satyrs, three sylvans, six Morris dancers, a magician, and an old woman. <laughs> and it's described by an eyewitness as a pastoral. Such details have perhaps obscured the possible, only possible, significance of a play of that title performed before King James. After all, Green included Oberon among the dramatist personae of his Scottish history. So there they are in the early 16th century Scotland, and Oberon pops up. Fantastic. And a play entitled The Valiant Scot, based on Blind Harris Wallace, was also apparently staged in England sometime in the 1620s. It was published in London in 1637, with a dedication to the Marquis of Hamilton. As even such a selective view as this suggests, the full inclusion of Scotland in the English field of vision predated James, James's succession to the English throne, not least because you didn't have to be that acute to see it coming, even if it was never quite a sure thing until it happened. Synoptic geographical and historical views certainly took it in. Raphael Hollinshead's Chronicles and William Camden's Britannia are only the most notable examples. In fact, Camden's was in some ways a collaborative work and drew extensively on the writings of his friend and fellow antiquarian, John Johnston of Aberdeen, Others put themselves in the frame. The antiquary Robert Cotton began to style himself Robert Bruce Cotton, claiming his exalted Scots descent. My friend Ben Johnson had a more recent claim, his paternal grandfather having been one of the Johnstons of Annandale, and he made his own northern pilgrimage on foot in 1618, a year after James's own. He referred proudly to, his, to this ancestry in his celebrated conversation with William Drummond at Hawthornden. Drummond even called him Ben Johnston, repatriating his name. At the outset of the notes he took of his guests' opinions, Drummond also records that Johnson had an intention to perfect an epic poem entitled Heroologia, of the worthies of this country, roused by fame, and was to dedicate it to his country. From the Esk Valley, this country can only mean Scotland, and most of the editors of Drummond's notes have amended it to his country, as if the idea that Johnson was going to write a praise of Scotland, addressed or dedicated to England, is inconceivable. Perhaps because Johnson once wrote a celebrated ode to himself, the suggestion that he would write an encomium to England dedicated to England has seemed somehow more plausible. 
but the claim in the transcript of Drummond's notes is supported by the evidence of a copy of John Johnston's verses on Scottish kings with Johnston's motto, Tanquam Explorator, up there, uh, as an explorer, inscribed on its title page in his own hand. Bound up with another book of Johnston's verses on Scottish worthies, this book was at one time part of Drummond's own library, further testifying both to the real and ongoing friendship of the two men and to the cross-border traffic of their age. These connections become even clearer when we take into account the evidence of the narrative of Johnson's journey on which I'm working with Anna, uh, written by a so far unidentified fellow walker who accompanied, accompanied him all the way from London to Edinburgh and who most commonly refers to Johnson as his gossip. Uh, Godfather, God sibling, old chum, bosom friend, whatever, we don't know. The account suggests that Johnson's fame and reputation was well known not only to Drummond but also to the wider Edinburgh population in that it records the enthusiastic and elaborate welcome that he received when he arrived at the city he called Britain's Other Eye, meaning bright place or intellectual centre. And there's a bit from, this is the bit from the manuscript. If anyone recognises this hand, do let me know. <laughs> a committee of civic worthies turned out to greet him and conduct him up to the Mercat Cross. And the account says, and this is the bit you can read there if you if, if you go that sort of thing. On Friday, all these gentlemen with others of the town brought my gossip to the High Cross and there on their knees drank the king's health, testifying in that place that he had performed his journey. My gossip also drank to the bailiff and aldermen and the whole people their health, they being so thick in the street that we could scarce pass by them that ran in throngs to have a sight of my gossip. The windows also being full, everyone peeping out of a round hole like a head out of a pillory. Here there are ample signs of a more general enthusiasm, and if the evidence of the populace of Edinburgh knew who Johnson was and were keen to greet him isn't striking enough, we find a more expansive and perhaps surprising instance of hospitality a few days earlier when Johnson was a guest of Sir John Hume, one of those Humes again, of North Berwick. As the account states, Wednesday, Sir John Humes told my gossip that his shearers had made a great suit to him to have a sight of him. So we walked up into the fields where was a number of them with a bagpipe who no sooner saw my gossip but they circled him and danced round about him. Shearers here simply means agricultural labourers, no sheep necessary. It seems extraordinary to think that Johnson should have been well enough known for farm workers to want to honour his visit. Perhaps they weren't. It was all set up by his host. Clearly the Edinburgh crowds, though, couldn't have been set up in quite the same way. All of it might well show that even if Scotland lacked the kind of public theatre in which both Johnson and Shakespeare made their reputations, the cross-border cultural traffic was sufficiently sustained and well-known for English writers to want to honour their neighbours' <coughs> worthies and for a Scottish public to want to honour those writers in their turn. So much, then, for intimacy. What a friction. Some of the same pieces of evidence speak for both. If the union of the crowns in James's royal person made Scots family in some senses, it also created new occasions and new forms for political antagonism. The obstacles thrown in the way of James's project for progress towards full constitutional union on both sides of the border, the reservations, suspicions and recriminations, are ample testimony to that. Ineffectual English incursions into Scotland in the Bishops' Wars of 1639-40 and the much more forceful intervention by a Scottish covenanting army in the armed conflict between Charles I and his English Parliament in the mid-1640s are just as much products of multiple monarchy as Ben Jonson's renewed interest in his roots. In 1649, matters came with violent literality to a head when the English discovered that they could not execute the King of England without simultaneously murdering the King of Scots. 
Disinclined to see this as an unfortunate historical accident, the Scots responded by crowning Charles's eldest son monarch of all his father's kingdoms the following year. This ungovernable and uncomfortable entanglement, whereby the seemingly discreet actions of one state pursued for apparently internal reasons turned out to be actions in the other, was one of the political forces propelling the English elites towards support for full political union towards the end of the century. Elsewhere, too, intimacy proved uncomfortable. Hollingshead's inclusion of Scottish history, for example, was not unproblematic, and in much early Jacobean English writing, we find outbreaks of the Scotophobia that Jenny Wormald has influentially seen as, de- as a defining mark of this era. Not all English visitors to Scotland were as complimentary or as open-minded as Johnson. Some had preconceptions about poverty, poverty filth and barrenness that they were only too happy to say had been confirmed. A notoriously condescending and derisive account of Scotland, long attributed to Anthony Weldon, appeared in the aftermath of James's 1617 pilgrimage and circulated widely in both manuscript and print for several generations. There are also commonplace complaints about the allegedly excessive hold over the king held by his countrymen and the usual stuff about Scots clogging up the streets of London and profiting at English expense. Authorities in both kingdoms had to take measures to suppress the voluble expression of national resentments. Plays such as John Day's Isle of Gulls from 1606 and Eastwood Ho, written in 1605 by Johnson, George Chapman and John Marston, gave some of these complaints and resentments an airing. Johnson and Chapman, in fact, were briefly imprisoned for their alleged part in Eastwood Ho, though both denied any responsibility for the offending words. In all of this, the touch of intimacy becomes a worry about whether what's mine is still really mine or whether you have become too close for comfort. At its most, expan- its most expansive and impelled by concerns about James's foreign and religious policies, this worry helped to foment a contrived nostalgia for the reign of Good Queen Bess. Good Queen Bess, even. Queen? Whatever. <laughs> the retrospectively imagined nobility and courtliness of the last of the monstrous Tudors was contrasted with the alleged decadence and incompetence of an effete and slovenly king in a, narr- in a narrative which was for a long while the consensus view on James's English reign. And Shakespeare, too, features in this story some of the most outlandish contributions to the so-called authorship debate suggest not only that the Earl of Oxford was the real author of Shakespeare's plays, but that he was also the son of Elizabeth, Prince Tudor, and therefore an heir kept out of the frame by a conspiracy of the wicked, the treacherous, and, it amounts to the same thing, the Scots. Shorn of their real author, Shakespeare's plays become eloquent testimony to the dispossession of an English royal line in that peculiar version uh, of history. This condition of intimacy and friction and its shaping and straining of the questions of nation and territory, property and integrity is what I want to use the term Jacobean to describe. It's more than proximity, just as the Scots and English become more than neighbours, each both others and ourselves to each other, in the multiple monarchy established in 1603. How far Shakespeare might be a Jacobean writer in this sense, though, and what that might mean now, is a question which can't be addressed without taking account of the fact that regnal union was overwritten with something rather different in 1707, and an event and a history which make the story of Scotland's Shakespeare both simpler and more complicated than that Jacobean characterisation might well have it. One of the most famous, perhaps legendary, episodes in that later chapter of the story is an occasion which, in fact, might be thought to show that there never was such a thing as Scotland Shakespeare. This is Playhouse Close, in case everyone's wondering. In December 1756, John Humes Douglas was performed at the Canongate Theatre 
to huge enthusiasm and genuinely popular acclaim. By the time of its first professional performance, Hume had benefited from the help and involvement of, among others, Adam Ferguson, David Hume, William, William Robertson, and the minister and critic Hugh Blair, who was to go on to become, as we know, the first occupant of the Edinburgh Regis chair. Looking for comparisons to anchor their praise, critics such as uh, David Hume happily reached for the name of Shakespeare. John Hume's play could be said to have overcome elements of absurdity or vulgarity that were then not infrequently noted in Shakespeare's work. For Edinburgh critics of a different persuasion, this was puffery of the clearest kind and such hyperbole deserved ridicule. Nonetheless, the comparison has stuck to the play and it's rarely discussed now without mention of one particular anecdote. As the story usually has it, so entranced and enthralled with the Edinburgh public that at one performance, a member of the audience rose from his place in the theatre and shouted that, which I'm not going to attempt to say. Despite 14 years here, I still can't do the accent. Or perhaps he didn't. One of the earlier written sources for this anecdote dates from 1812, more than 50 years later, and suggests a young and sanguine North Briton, as it has it, as, uh, actually shouted, Well, lads, what think you of Wally Shakespeare now? See, I told you I can't do it. The story has been sufficiently unstable for one raconteur, the critic Sir George Douglas, to affect a startling transposition of the action. It has been related, he wrote in his Lectures on Scottish Poetry, published in 1911, that at one of the performances of Douglas at Covent Garden, a perfervid Scot shouted from the gallery as a challenge to the English audience. For George Douglas, it was clear that the man's patriotism had betrayed his discretion. In the 1812 version of the anecdote, the shout is evidence of an embarrassingly over-enthusiastic taking up of the comparison invoked by David Hume, which was itself an extravagant and unwise provocation to what the writer calls national reflection. Here, then, is a British discomfort at the invocation of national differences, which it might claim to have rendered immaterial. In being rendered immaterial, however, they become not only the stuff of fervour, desire or unruly passion, but also a desire for the clarity of a cultural difference and a difference in cultural property. George Douglas brings out the logic of the original anecdote, not only in giving his perfervid Scot an English audience, but also in making it clear that Willie Shakespeare is yours, not ours. To some extent, though, such comments point just to what is obscured or suppressed in a point, sorry, not just to what is obscured or suppressed in a British Union, but also to what such eruptive and imperative desires might well obscure in their turn. In the introduction to their collection of essays entitled Shakespeare in Scotland, Andrew Murphy and Willie Maley suggest that the young man's question, if it was ever uttered, arguably assumes that Scottish culture ought to measure itself against the best that England had to offer. If Douglas suggested to some that Hume could be measured against this yardstick, subsequent literary history has offered other, more durable names. Walter Scott has certainly been discussed in this connection, of course, but the more obvious figure, not least because he too bears the title of Bard, is Robert Burns. In an essay in Murphy and Maley's collection, Robert Crawford suggests that to see these two bards as jousting competitors is misguided, but that, understandably, national pride may encourage such a view. He goes on, Thomas Campbell, in 1819, thought Burns and Shakespeare equal in terms of their education. He says he is making this point without intending to make any comparison between the genius of these two bards. But one senses that, like many a speaker at a Burns supper, he's strongly tempted. Sometimes the temptation proved too much. In 1864, the 105th anniversary of the bard's birth was marked by a dinner in Edinburgh at which a certain unhomely, perhaps unhumely, presence, sorry, seems to have been felt... <laughs> 
Interestingly, though, it's the very work of commemoration that becomes the, ba the basis for the, for the comparison. Proposing the toast, the chairman declared, I cannot sit down without remonstrating, as every Scotsman ought to do, as to the paltriness and invidiousness, invidiousness of the remarks occasionally made by parties in England concerning Burns. Hear, hear, that's what it says. I hadn't realised that Jerry Paxman had been alive for so long. <laughs> While thousands of Englishmen in their own country and elsewhere join heartily with us in celebrating his birthday in this simple social manner, others seem to entertain a pleasure in holding such meetings up to ridicule. A few years ago, at the great centenary celebration, the world was petulantly asked by a great organ of public opinion in the South, will no one give us someone to make a centenary about? The answer, I think, has been given with a vengeance. Here, here. They've lately been trying to get up something of that kind about Shakespeare, and to all appearance are making a great botch of it. Laughter. For this, in veneration of Shakespeare, we give our sincere pity, and seeing how things are managed, venture to hint that they had better let that gentleman alone. There does not appear to have been a public event staged in commemoration of the, of the Shakespeare Test Centenary in Edinburgh that year, though the Scotsman did report banquets at Glasgow and some other places in Scotland, it says, unhelpfully, unspecifically. <laughs> the difficulty of venturing the comparison between Burns and Shakespeare, then, is that it might mean taking the English poet as an original, a pattern, not just in relation to his work, but in the way that its continued reception is organised and conducted. To take it as yardstick would doom the effort at comparison to demonstrate exactly what it sought to shake off. The Edinburgh chairman's rhetoric in 1864 is clearly working to sidestep this trap. Crawford's essay, strikingly, does something very similar. He argues that Shakespeare the Bard, Shakespeare the object of the collector's various attentions, was in fact modelled on a Scots poetic ideal, and that 18th century English literature press-ganged uh, a celebrated playwright into an oceanic role it found it needed somebody to play. Not without both awkwardness and a certain inappropriateness, Crawford implies. Whereas Burns's bardic mantle fits his popular and radical status, Shakespeare was always the king's man, monarch-obsessed, as Crawford says no fewer than three times, representative of an England constitutively incapable of the kind of genuinely popular culture out of which Ossian and later Burns were able to sing. Thus Shakespeare is indeed a national poet, but not a bard, since the imagined community of England can properly have no such thing. As Crawford puts it, Shakespearean ideology has contributed to the myths of England as sceptred isle. The principal intellectual myth of modern Scotland, the democratic intellect, finds its bardic correlative in Burns. Crawford's essay, like the chairman's speech, is an engaging and provocative surrender to the very temptations from which it claims to stand aloof. The creation, as much as the analysis of myth. It's disavowal not just of Shakespeare's centrality, but also of his strange domesticity, of his belonging in and to Scotland, comes from a desire to define him as something like an honoured guest, a representative or ambassador from elsewhere, and thus to give him a stable place. As much is evident in Crawford's phrasing when he describes Shakespeare as a welcome part of Scottish as a world culture, and when he dwells on the English exclusion of Burns. If this is inclusion, it is exclusion too, in making Shakespeare either a friendly alien or perhaps at most a denizen, in which case the collections of Shakespearean material in Edinburgh institutions become to some extent embarrassing riches, a source even of internal friction. In Scotland, but not of it, a spectre at a Burns supper. There are further layers to this haunting. The evidence of the rest of Crawford's essay shows that he knows full well which king it was that Shakespeare served, but he's disinclined to think through what that Jacobean identification might actually mean. If he was the king's man, 
and he was just as much a servant of the King of Scots as of the King of England, just as Lawrence Fletcher had been, since James only had one court. Calvin's case had given a legal shape to Bacon's sense of how the alteri nos could be both other and ourselves in the crucial context of the ownership of property. It confirmed that Scots, as Scots, and not as Britons, could have a right to pieces of England itself on the same terms as English subjects of their king. Insofar as he is Jacobean, then this distinctive condition could be said to be Shakespearean too. Perhaps it's less definitively rewritten, domesticated, settled, superseded by the Union of 1707 than has sometimes been imagined. Perhaps such myths as Crawford voices, the myth of Yerwali versus Urarabi, are an attempt to stop it pushing us from our easily locatable sources. Sorry for the accent. The story of a particular collectible can serve to give a local but hardly settled habitation to these remarks. In the garden of Benali Tower, now on the outskirts of suburban Edinburgh, stands a rather forlorn statue of Shakespeare. Made of code stone, a form of ceramic, in the second half of the 1780s, he occupies his own niche in the garden wall. He is, however, not only somewhat mossy, but has also lost his rather important hands and compares rather dismally with another surviving code statue of Shakespeare still on duty outside a London library, in fact in the borough of Newham. And Ali Tower was once the residence of Henry Coburn, writer, lawyer and citizen, who seems to have brought Shakespeare here to join a collection of garden sculptures sometime before 1850. Two centuries of the wind and the rain, with no doubt some human assistance, have done their work. Hey-ho. <laughs> sorry. But the interesting thing, perhaps... Bad jokes, sorry. But the interesting thing, perhaps, is not how Shakespeare came to be thus neglected, but what he was doing here in the first place. Purchased by the theatre manager John Jackson and mentioned in the 1790 list of his outstanding debts, the statue once stood atop the pediment of Edinburgh's Theatre Royal, flanked by tragedy and comedy, as you can see here. The theatre itself, sometimes described as Scotland's first national theatre, had been established here when Edinburgh's new town was first set out, in a precinct known from then until the 1850s as Shakespeare Square. Inside, the Edinburgh audiences were treated to a repertory in which both Shakespearean <coughs> drama and Hume's Douglas were staples. The pattern set here was repeated elsewhere in Scotland. In Dumfries, a theatre built to the same model as Edinburgh's was erected in Shakespeare Street and was famously visited by Burns, the latter here perhaps a guest in Shakespeare's house. But then, when the Edinburgh Theatre Royal was remodelled in 1830, Shakespeare lost his elevated position, as you can see, and Burns and Scott came to replace him as suitable objects of public commemoration in Shakespeare. In, in, Scotland's, that's the confusion I can't help making now, Scotland's capital. Yet this is nothing so simple as a story of extrusion, let alone exile or repatriation. For the Shakespeare tercentenary that Edinburgh ignored in 1864 was marked in Alloway, with a dinner held in his honour at Burns Cottage, one bard having his birthday party in another bard's birthplace. A century later, the Quarter Centenary was celebrated by exhibitions, performances and other events in more than 40 Scottish towns and cities. How best to comprehend such gestures? What claim, if any, might they be staking? Cheek, which is where we started, implies intimacy, as I've said. In a particular Scots usage, indeed, to cheek up to someone is to court, flirt with or seduce them. But if cheek is insolence or something like it, then the intimacy it acts out is a challenge. And if we check or rebuke someone who cheeks us, it's because we want to insist on a distance, a formality, or estrangement, or hierarchy, 
that their cheek has already shown to be inoperative. Shakespeare cheeked Scotland. Shakespeare can be cheeked in return. Because of this cheek, it can make sense to claim, as Greg does, that an English playwright wrote the greatest Scottish play. Scotland Shakespeare, this Jacobean Shakespeare, is a not very proper name for this whole complex of acts and responses. Cheek by jowl, cheek to cheek, never quite not treading on our own, each other's toes. Thank you. Thanks very much, James. Such a fascinating wide ranging paper. Um, yeah, so I'd like to think about it again. I have some questions for you myself, but perhaps I could just start bothering up if anybody had any immediate um, responses or, or questions. similarities in, 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 in the sort of role of national myth <coughs> or, or any, any of those sorts of things. Um, and, and, and the, I suppose this, the point for me was the, was, is the way in which the, the, kind of the, the bardic figure is called for what Crawford is actually putting his finger on in the sense that, 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 that there is some particular function um, that is more than just being a famous or the most famous poet and or writer. Um, uh, and the way that that particular, the kind of demands that sort of status makes makes on uh, figures, and the way in which that does get caught up in commemoration. I mean, it's, it's the sorts of claims that are made in Stratford for for Shakespeare are also being made for Burns in the the, the Burns Museum. Um, uh, the, They're also being made for Scott. At that time, yeah. Later now, is that still? Well, rather than that, there's Scott monument. Yeah. That idea of getting the characters in. That they got from forms of commemorating Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 no, that's true. And of course, the Scott Monument is going up, but it's at the same time that yeah. Shakespeare is coming down. Yeah. And Scott gets a rather grander monument than yeah. than Burns does in, in, in Edinburgh. That's certainly true. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, there'd, there'd be more thinking to be done about that kind of relationship. There is there are, there is obviously there's a reasonable degree of, 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 of writing on uh, on on Scott as a, as a as a writer of history, obviously. Um, and the relationship between, or the way in which that relates to or, or, or differs from the sorts of things that change before. Just a question about um, the motivations behind collections and thinking about yeah. cultural value collections. Uh, perhaps a recent, um, well, a recent case that you cited, the 1956 acquisition. Um, I just wondered if you looked at the I suppose kind of discourse around that and what Dover Wilson or, or Buck were actually writing and saying about the kind of claim they were making for that collection um, and if that had a kind of particular dimension. Yeah, 
Leave Scotland and Edinburgh. Yeah, there's both. What, what comes out in his own account of it um, when he writes his, his memoirs uh, is, is both a kind of positive and a negative motive. The negative motive is that he doesn't want it to go across the Atlantic, uh, and his great worry is it's going to be snapped up by Texas um, and, and taken away. So uh, even in 1956, that was a concern. So there's a sense of sort of somehow the, the loss of, of, of a cultural patrimony in that way. Um, and the positive uh, uh, motive, uh, which is of course the corollary of that, is, is that it should stay here, it should stay in Edinburgh, and that, that, that a Scottish collection, a national library, should have it. It's the kind of thing that a national library, qua national library, should have. Um, and how much that is a matter of his kind of uh, self-importation into a Scottish context, that, that this is what he would expect, being seeing where he's come from and seeing he's a kind of a great English Shakespearean. Um, or whether, that's just, whether that is a sense that this is the kind of thing, you know, these are the kind of treasures that a, that a great national library ought to have, and therefore that's the, that's the thing to do. So that's, uh, so he, he busies himself getting money off the government and, uh, and other sources in order to, to uh, get that acquisition sorted out. Um, but yes, it's, it's, those, those are the sorts of motivations, and, and the discourse is very much of sort of uh, putting something at the heart of the institution, which the institution ought to have at its heart. Um, and he also explicitly kind of relates it back to uh, Scotland's lack of a kind of public theatre culture in, in, in Shakespeare's lifetime, as if there's somehow a, a restoration of a, a kind of original lack, if you can restore an original lack, uh, actually going on at the same time. Observations? Is there any <coughs> evidence of kind of counter-cheeking in the sense that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the way that the Mackers thought of, and, and cheerfully acknowledged Chaucer as being a kind of a master, that, or the master even, and obviously then there's an acknowledgement in, in, in implicit in all these comparisons of Hume to Shakespeare. Mm. Um, is there any knowledge of, of a kind of trade going in the other direction? I mean, is in the sense that, that, that English writers are acknowledging a Scottish writer, uh, you know, do you know what I mean? Like that, yeah. that sort of thing of saying, okay, well, there's a. I mean, are we, is it Scott or. I realise this is not exactly on topic, but uh, yeah. I just wondered. I, yeah, I, I suppose there must be. I mean, there are plenty of people in the room who are a better place to talk about perfectly. You know, lots of instances yeah. in, which that's, in, in which that goes on. That, that It's not all a kind of one way traffic where Scotland has to receive yeah. uh, uh, kind of English writers, but they don't go back the other way. I mean, Jeremy Paxman isn't. Doesn't stand as a representative, I hope, of, of, of uh, uh, English intellectuals and their approach to, to Scottish writing. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, clearly that it's, it's, it, it is a, a cross-border traffic. I suppose what I was trying to get at was the sense in which it's not, it's not frictionless, and it doesn't simply presume a, a kind of pre-existing national boundary that it can both be done and yet somehow um, uh, felt as. as, as awkward or difficult and trying to give a sense of what those difficulties are. I was just very taken by the way that Greg both executes that in his play, but also the way he talks about it, which is, you can probably tell since I was looking at that term from him, uh, but just that way of thinking about the relationship, which seems to provide a, a model which doesn't come from theoretical, <coughs> theoretical constructions elsewhere, um, and maybe all the worse for that, perhaps it should, um, but is a way of, 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 of articulating that kind of sense of, of slightly uncomfortable belonging, as it were, strange domesticity uh, that does seem to characterise it. And it is the fact that there is, you know, there is a history of Scottish reading of Shakespeare which goes back 400 years, uh, right from, from when he was in his pomp. 
Um, so it's not as if he sort of came uh, at, at the point of a gun at some later point. Uh, and that is distinctive. That's, that's different from, from elsewhere, from other sort of international Shakespeare, shall we say. Quite enough about the sort of the, 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 the I know a, 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 what I know about the curriculum of the time would suggest they certainly weren't studying anything of this of this order and of this nature. The vernacular playbooks were not part of the uh, in any way curricularly useful uh, to them. Um, but that wasn't the only. I mean, there was a there's the other one that the, 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 the copy of Titus Andronicus that comes in in 1700. So they appear to be accepting donations of all sorts and happily cataloguing them amongst, uh, amongst the general collections. And actually they print, a, a, there's a printed catalogue of Drummond's donation in, in 1627, which sort of advertises what he's given to the library. Uh, and, and the English plays are, are included in that amongst all the other sorts of work. So they do seem to be taking their bearings from, from him as, as, as an important figure, uh, as, a, as, a, as a, an intellectual and a writer of the time, um, as, as an alumnus of the university with... Uh, and, and allowing him, as it were, to set the terms on which all that happened. But it, it, as far as I'm sort of aware, it doesn't go into the curriculum at all um, uh, and, until the, the, the lectures that we've been hearing about in previous weeks on, on rhetoric and Belletra get, get going uh, much, much later. Um, so it remains a sort of slightly anomalous presence in the, in the library's holdings. But it's not, uh, it, it, it's not the only instance on which those sorts of things are, are taken in. And the early library books and the donation book record other instances. It's quite interesting to see the, sh the sheer range and variety of stuff that's coming in. It sort of makes you wonder whether there's a kind of invisible curriculum going on alongside the official book. The universities are perhaps positively encouraging other stuff going on. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there is evidence uh, from sort of manuscript remains of the period and other things of... Uh, Edinburgh literary culture and the way that it's actually working and, and reading up, so you know, and, and the kinds of things that are being uh, circulated and read and, and, and engaged with. Um, so there's plenty of evidence that, that the, the educated men of the time are, are, are doing are doing all that sort of thing. Just as a supplement to that, I was just thinking that there's a striking contrast with the Bodleian, of course, at the same time, which actually excludes all playbooks from its collection. It's yeah. Yes. Yes, Edinburgh took him and the body and didn't want him at that time. <laughs> I just wanted to say that I thought your concept of uh, your, your teasing out of the vegan quote on an Altieri note was very interesting. And I think there's something sort of politically explosive in that very, very tidy paper that I quite like. And I think that it made me think back too to the Dunsling play. And there was a sense, if I'm remembering, play correctly, of the kind of endless horizon of other and ourselves in there, because of course, certainly in the opening bits, it's dramatised, the tension between the Highland 
Scots and the lowland Scots, the Gaelic speakers and the ones who you know, speak English, and the real suspicions flying around there. Um, and that was very interesting. And then you sort of lose that as the play goes on. So this wasn't part of the paper. But I am thinking that there is a kind of endless horizon here of this kind of you know, otherness. And, and you know, it, it gets complex very quickly. Yeah. Um, and I think that that play does really engage with that on, on multiple levels. Um, and so this is a really rubbish thing to do, because I'm not asking you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to agree. Moving <laughs> <laughs> you know, from archives to theoretical reforms. Um, and so, you know, it got me thinking back about the play, and, and I was disappointed it didn't explore that more. Um, but, but certainly, you know, you, you did here. Yeah, no, it's that's absolutely, and that's that's particularly striking. There, there, there is the sense in which the kind of the, allegor the allegorical thrust of the play wants you to go in one direction, and then it adds the, the, that metadramatic layer in which the writing back to Shakespeare uh, uh, plays a, a significant part. And one thing I, I went on for long enough. One thing I didn't have time to, to talk about and would have liked to was a couple of early 1990s Scots translations of, of Macbeth, one of which is written as it were prospectively for a national theatre of Scotland. Um, and it's sort of offered to the future for when there will be a national theatre fit to perform it. Um, and, uh, but they take very sort of interestingly different approaches to the questions of, of kind of language and the relationship between um, a, 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 a politics of, of language and a, a politics of nation and how those are worked out. And a politics of institutions as well. I mean, that's what is lurking in here all along, is the sense of the kind of institutional... Uh, putting it in within institutional frames... These institutional frames, it's almost impossible to avoid questions of uh, allegiance, sovereignty, uh, state, nation, so on and so forth. I mean, you can imagine, well, there's, I mean, the combination of Royal Shakespeare Company and National Theatre of Scotland is an interesting one, uh, but <coughs> combination together, and then you create the conditions in which that sort of thing can be done. So you get all these other layers going on uh, in, in, in the way that it's actually negotiating its way past the, the sorts of uh, the, the well, negotiating way around and with, sometimes embracing the, the difficulties and the awkwardnesses. Um, I like—I mean, I like the, the, the play a lot, and was very taken with its cheek in particular. Just a footnote to the cross-border traffic. I just wonder if it's not the case that authors from a bigger culture are readier to face their borrowings, or if you like, are more insouciant kleptomania, truly. You could say that Wordsworth and Coleridge in the preface to Lyrical Ballads would have done well to call themselves Lakeside Bundians, wouldn't they? But they didn't actually do so. That wasn't really the question. There's another bet that I wondered if we were really being cheeky if we could say that the poetic and metaphoric richness of Beth is actually owed to the obscurities of the political situation Shakespeare was trying to address because he was so keen to flatter James he had to create a familial and dynastic situation in which Fleance escaped and Macbeth, or at least Lady Macbeth, had no children. Therefore, Macbeth was doomed to artificiate a power-structured future which could never come into existence and therefore to produce the world's greatest speeches about the beastliness of temporality. <laughs> First the bank controls time and then tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So you could say that Shakespeare actually owed everything to the fact that one of his most difficult heroes was doomed to that political situation in which he was trying to make a fast part. Yes, <laughs> to be a dynastic dead end uh, and yet somehow to still to want to have to make a claim on, on eternity. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and yeah, I, just, I mean, Beth is such a 
fantastic play. It is my reason I keep. Well, it's been great to be able to kind of work on it and with it and around it. It's, it's my favourite work of all time ever. Um, and it is precisely that sort of the, the, the uh, hallucinatory intensity of, of, of so much as what is of what is going on linguistically. Uh, and that is, yes, it's a, a, a response in some ways. Inevitably, it's a response to those kinds of conditions. Uh, the, and people have seen in it lots, given the kind of richness of that. People have seen in it a, a lot of different sorts of possibilities. I mean, in taking on the the chronicle versions that it takes on, it also takes on the debates and the disputes uh, which those carried with them. Uh, and since there was a live debate, and this is something that David Norbrook pointed out a couple of decades ago, but since there is a sort of live debate. Um, certainly in James's childhood, uh, about the nature of the Scottish monarchy, uh, with Buchanan uh, pushing his particular view uh, and his particular sense of how that monarchy operated and therefore how fundamental questions of allegiance and sovereignty were to be resolved. Shakespeare inherits all of that, and it's sort of half-digested, not all that well-digested necessarily, not all that well worked through, so those sorts of bits stick out. So to that extent... Shakespeare's own cultural borrowings are, are, are poking through the, the surface of the play uh, in ways that people could pick up on it, it was possible to pick up on it. And at the same time, it's working through the, 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 the kind of both dynastic and also more local preoccupations and concerns that, that James has got. Um, uh, 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 to, uh, um, to sort of generate a, a, a kind of response which, which doesn't really <coughs> say a single thing, I suppose that would be the, the point. That's a weak point, but that's nonetheless a true one. Um, about what it does, it it just sort of picks up on that Jacobean moment and somehow writes out of it um, with, without doing what other people are doing, which is a sort of contemporary topical commentary on on what's going on. Um, I was interested in what you were saying about Shakespeare on an institutional level. He's clearly um, thinking about the collections and so on, in the sense that in some ways Scotland's appropriation of and engagement with Shakespeare has been used to kind of shore up a sense of Scotland's own cultural capital. You know, it's real university, it's real library, you know, we have Shakespeare. Um, but I was also immensely interested by what you said about, um, I can't remember who you were quoting, you know, the idea of the greatest Scottish play being written by an English playwright. That's David Gregg, yeah. Okay. And I suppose I was wondering how much kind of, you know, on the course of your travels, you come across perhaps a sense of a danger or a reluctance or an unwillingness, you know, within Scotland to engage with Shakespeare because it, you know, is there some sort of danger that, that Shakespeare's cultural capital might be greater than Scotland's? Ah, um, and that. I think if, if there is, and that phrase is, is, is interesting just because it's on the face of it absurd. Uh, at one level, it makes no sense. How could the greatest Scottish play have been written by someone who wasn't a Scot? How does that, how does that work? And then, of course, you unpack it and, it and you can find various ways in which it does make sense. But it's also the sense of, of the, that that somehow should not have happened, as it were, that that needs to be written back to, that that situation cannot just be let lie and needs to be responded to. So there is a sense in which, and here he is looming up, lo looming over all of us, um, and what are we doing? We're merely perpetuating, perpetuating that. Shouldn't we go off and talk about David Lindsay or something else uh, instead and, and, and not do this? Um, and, and one could see the point in saying, well, it's, it's all a bit much that this sort of crowds in on us. Um, and to participate in that, to, to, to perpetuate that, is, is, to perpe is, is, to, is, to, is to keep a focus on 
what looms too large and not let other things uh, become visible. Um, but it doesn't have to be merely the kind of perpetuation of that sort of domination, as it were. It doesn't have to be that, that perpetuation. It can be, a, 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 as it has been repeatedly over the centuries, a, a, a prompt and a, and and a, um, and a, and, a, and an impulse, which isn't just a matter of getting beyond national questions. I think that's the point I was wanting to, to make in particular. It's not just a matter of kind of transcending national differences as if somebody just leave them all behind, but through that very engagement with those issues and questions, um, that that you, you get beyond the fixed categories and the fixed roles. So that would be that would be something to, to say about what you, you know, the continuing engagement with us and the continuing uh, uh, acknowledgement or, or working through of Shakespeare's over, overweening presence. Can I just one final question, I think? Do you think that perhaps Shakespeare's profile became so large that Shakespeare, the icon, replaced Shakespeare the dramatist? And this, in turn, set up uh, an adversarial stance between Scottish clerics, Scottish players, <coughs> Burns, or Shakespeare. Yeah, uh, well, yes. I mean, as he becomes a kind of iconic figure, it depends what he's becoming an icon of, to some extent, because ways of rendering his iconicity change and, and, and differ. I mean, there's influential ways of, 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 of writing about Shakespeare and, um, by someone like Thomas Carlyle, for example, who writes of Shakespeare as a kind of sort of English genius but includes himself in the, in the articulation of the kind of pride and belonging, of the, you know, pride and ownership of that particular figure. Um, so you do, if, if Shakespeare is, to be, is held to be uh, uh, you know, a, a, somehow this emblematic uh, figure of a, of a peculiarly English culture, then you can see why people would object to certain versions of that. Um, but it's, as I say, it's whether, a matter of whether in order to get past that, in order to combat that, you have to reach for the universal, or whether you can remain within the, the, the uh, whether, whether, you, whether you have to sort of try and transcend the sorts of issues of place and belonging, or whether you can continue to do it through an exploration of those issues of place and belonging. My claim would be that someone like David Gregg in Dunstane is exactly doing that latter, when he's not doing allegory, uh, he's doing that latter, he's... he's He's, uh, he's, he's getting past it without transcending it. There's been a lot of sort of efforts. In some ways, the very thing of Britain is an, is an attempt to sort of put an overarching structure, uh, which renders those, those sort of those national differences immaterial. Um, so that's a reach for it, which then ga- gathers about it its own uh, claims of, of, of place and belonging. Um, so, so the process goes on. I suppose. James is going to need a drink quite soon, as all weeks are long, and we might feel we need a drink as well. But if you have any other uh, questions, suggestions, I'm sure we'll be happy to discuss them over a glass of wine. And, uh, or indeed objections. Yeah, objections as well. All are welcome at the first. But perhaps we should thank you again for such a, a fascinating paper this evening. Thanks. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.